0: This is exactly right. I'm Sarah Iyer.
1: And I'm Stephen Ray Morris,
0: hosts of the PurrCast. That's Purr with three
1: R's. It's a podcast all about cats.
0: We can't talk to cats, so we talk to people who know and love
1: them. Each episode we invite a fellow feline lover, comedian, celebrities, kitty caretakers, and animal artists, to name a few, and we gush with them about our favorite furry friends.
0: Tune into the Percast on Exactly Right Network for new episodes every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe to the Percast and all of Exactly Right's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen.
1: Right, meow.
2: This is Exactly Right. Violent crime occurs every 25 seconds, but we spend more money protecting our Amazon packages than we do on our personal safety. This holiday, gift peace of mind and gift Katana Safety, the first and only personal safety solution that attaches to your smartphone. Katana is monitored by a 24-7 response center and an app that alerts seven of your loved ones. No wonder it's one of Oprah's favorite things of 2018. Buy now at katanasafety.com slash fall line and get 20% off with the promo code fall again That's K-A-T-A-N-A-Safety.com slash Fall Line. Before we begin Episode 3, we are pleased to make two announcements. One from the Fall Line and one from our friend Donna Green. First, an update. The Millbrook Twins Reward Fund. Thanks to a recent and very generous donation from Little Petal Clothing, the reward fund has now reached $10,000. We are incredibly grateful to the listeners who donated and to the businesses, Osteen Law Group, Encompass Podcast Studio, and now Little Petal, who again have come together to offer a reward of $10,000 in the case. You can find more information about that in our show notes. And now I have the honor of introducing you to Donna Green, an advocate, writer, speaker, and now podcaster who we feel very honored to call friend. Last week's episode, you heard Donna's story, how her son Raymond was kidnapped and that she's never stopped looking for him, and that with her upcoming podcast, Spotlight on the Missing, she hopes that she can help other families too. But right now, Donna needs our help. I think it will be best if she explains it to you in her own words. Hi, I'm Donna Green, and I'm asking you today
3: to help me fund a reward in the case of my missing son, Raymond Lamar Green, who was kidnapped 40 years ago today. As a victim advocate, I've learned the importance of rewards and encouraging tips and leading to resolutions in cases. And now, with your help, I hope we can see that the same movement in Raymond's case. If you can help us, please visit the GoFundMe link at the show notes of this episode.
2: This is The Fall Line. Please note, some of the interviews for this episode were by necessity recorded in a large public space and the quality is not as high as we'd like. However, we feel it's important that you hear from the mother and daughter involved in the kidnapping we cover in this episode.
4: I was so depressed. And every night, Seemed like I would hear her crying, and I would wake up and I'd be rocking, like i rocking her back to sleep. And then I realized that she's not there, but I could hear her crying. August,
2: 1981. Just two and a half months before the last victim in the Atlanta child murders, one of the two adults and one of the only two Wayne Williams is convicted of killing, had been found on the banks of the Chattahoochee River. Less than a month before, in June, a man would break into the Atlanta FBI offices and hold the agents there hostage for three hours. June also brought the CDC's first release statement concerning GRID, the disease we'd later come to know as HIV-AIDS. Ronald Reagan, then President of the United States, visited Atlanta that summer. And on August 3, 1981, Shantae Yvette Alexander was born. The police report describes the day as clear and hot. Not a surprise for summer in the South. August has traditionally been one of the busiest months in maternity wards, and 1981 was no exception. Grady was packed with expected mothers, new babies, and women in recovery. It had been less than three years since Raymond Green disappeared, an abduction that occurred because the kidnapper had been allowed to wander freely throughout the hospital. As far as we can tell the ward was still easily accessible to anyone who chose to visit it. It was easy enough for a woman to access in broad daylight. The nurse's station was empty that day. And that woman put newborn Shantae Alexander in a bag and carried her out of the hospital. Simple as that. Shantae was the fifth child of Bobby and Sandra Alexander, who worked at the Atlanta branch of the IRS. The couple, long married and settled in Cab County, had a large, happy, and close extended family, and they were thrilled at their final child's arrival. They'd worried that they'd never have a girl. And before Shantae was 12 hours old, they didn't. She would be kidnapped from the ward at Grady Memorial, where her mother was recovering from the birth and waiting for a follow-up operation to get her tubes tied. This particular kidnapping does not appear on any of the local timelines or This Day in History websites. There was coverage at the time, though the story mostly hit the news media after the kidnapper, Louise Hurdlet was caught. The Atlanta Police Department's work on this case was so superior that the two officers in charge, Huffman and Nykirk, received special commendations in November of 1981. But according to Sandra Alexander, Grady Hospital's response left much to be desired. On August 4th, 1981, Sandra Alexander sat in a shared recovery room at Grady, propped up in a bed. She was exhausted. After four boys, she said she told the doctor, this one had better be my daughter. After they brought Shantae in from the nursery, Sandra tried to breastfeed her, but Shantae was sound asleep, sucking on her finger. Sandra hated to disturb her. She wondered if her daughter would suck her thumb into childhood and had a brief moment of imagining what Shantae might be like and look like as a toddler. It was a happy moment in what had been an awkward late night and early morning. The wards were organized by age, with teen mothers on one wing and adult women on another. Sandra was grouped with the older women and in a shared room. Sandra's roommate, who'd had a boy, was unfriendly. In fact, she was oddly so. She pulled the curtains tight around her bed, even when her husband suggested she open them. You're all women, after all, he told her. She wouldn't speak when Sandra tried to engage her in conversation. They were both waiting for their babies to be brought in. It's not like there was anything else to do. But Sandra had no luck. She was antisocial, Sandra told us. After Sandra's own husband, Bobby, left to take care of the boys, Sandra sat mostly in silence, wondering why the woman was acting so strangely. You see, as soon as her roommate's husband had left, the roommate had jumped out of bed and rushed off to use the phone. There wasn't one in their room, so she had to head down the hall and make a call there. Sandra couldn't guess who she might be calling. After all, the roommate's husband had just left too. Who else could she need that immediately? After that phone call, things got stranger. Sandra says her roommate alternated between hiding in her bed with the curtains tightly drawn and going to the door of the hospital room to look up and down the corridor. At the time, Sandra couldn't make sense of it. Now, though, it's pretty clear. Sandra believes her roommate had called the kidnapper. She alleges that that roommate was in on Shante's abduction and even invited the woman who took her daughter into the room. The babies had just been brought back in to see their mothers when a stranger appeared. The person was a light-complected Black woman in her late 20s, of medium height and build, and wearing a polka-dotted dress that had, as the police file reports, a two- to three-inch rip across the shoulder. Sandra had never seen the woman before and assumed she had to be a friend of the roommate.
4: And uh, she had a big bag. I don't know what she had it, or my roommate had it. But anyway, it was a big bag. And she had, uh, she was just talking, just talking. My roommate got it. I mean, they were just going, you know, just talking up something. So she decided to leave. She said, I'm going to go and check on my niece. By the time I got out the door to go get in the hospital gown, I saw her come out the the bathroom, the patient's bathroom, you know. But I had that feeling that something wasn't right. So I decided not to get the guys to go back to my room. When I got around there, my baby was gone. Everything in the bed was gone. The water bottle was gone. Everything. Except for the sheet that he had on the Everything
2: else was gone. Sandra asked her roommate if the nurses had come for Shantae, but the woman didn't answer. So, she went into the hallway and began to ask if anyone had seen the stranger with a baby. Even then, Sandra knew. One patient told Sandra that she'd seen a lady with a big bag who'd been too impatient to wait on the elevator, and who had instead chosen to take the 11 flights of stairs down to the lobby. Sandra searched for nursing staff and couldn't find them, and then she had further trouble when the security line to the front desk was busy. Nurses had to go down the stairs to alert the security guards and begin a lockdown. Sandra's not sure how long this took, but it was too long. There are a few important points to highlight from Sandra's account of that, that afternoon. One, just a few hours after childbirth, she was told to go and fetch her own hospital gowns for her impending surgery. Two, when Sandra went to find the nurses after she realized Shantae was gone, no one was at the station. Certainly, you can't expect every single person on staff to remain in place at all times. But it took Sandra valuable moments to locate the hospital employees. More time was lost as they tried to contact security. With no emergency lockdown procedure in place, or if that procedure had been established without it being followed… Shanti's kidnapper had plenty of time to take a crying baby out of the hospital. It took something close to 10 minutes for the nurses to get down the 11 flights of stairs, contact security, and allegedly have those doors secured. We say allegedly because, in the next hour, two news stations and Sandra's husband were able to make it up the supposedly locked staircase and into the ward. Either way, it was too late. The kidnapper was long gone. Sandra turned to her roommate and demanded to know what had happened. According to Sandra, the woman clammed up, even when hospital staff swarmed. She wouldn't say a word. The next few minutes, or maybe it was longer, Sandra couldn't tell, were a blur of activity. Her aunt, who worked on the 13th floor, was called down to talk to her. There were reports of patients who had heard a baby crying, but hadn't realized it was coming from a bag. Most disturbingly, there came a story from one of the young mothers on the teenage ward. This teenager had also given birth to a girl and said a strange woman had approached her, picked up her baby, and declared, I'm going to call you my miracle baby. The teenager, horrified, snatched her child back and buzzed the nurses, but they hadn't come. Thankfully, the stranger eventually left, but as far as Sandra knows, that initial warning went unanswered. So, after the failed attempt on the young mother's ward, the kidnapper made her way to Sandra's room. When the police began to question Sandra, they immediately developed a composite drawing, one so strikingly good that Sandra felt it perfectly captured the woman's likeness. After the police sent out the drawing, Sandra's cousin, who also worked at Grady alongside her aunt, managed to make her way onto the floor to check on Sandra. When she saw the composite drawing, she was immediately struck by it.
4: And she saw the composite drawing, and she recognized the girl. She said, "I know her. I don't her before." And they said, "Well," she said, "Great home. She's an Avon representative. Cause see the bag She took her out in was on the big Avon bag, the one you have all your samples and something. That's what she did." So they told her. They said, "Are you sure?" She said, "Yeah, I'm sure." So she took her over to Great Home, where she known the be. When nobody over there to talk about it. They knew, but they didn't want to talk about
2: it. We're not precisely sure when the police took Sandra's cousin over to Grady Homes in hopes of tracking down the Avon lady, but it was in the 24 hours following Shante's disappearance. As Sandra explained, no one there wanted to identify the woman. So, the police were then left to disseminate that drawing throughout the city, which they did. Sandra spent the next week in Grady, which was unusual as she'd had no birth complications. She thinks it might have had something to do with the fit she describes having after Shante was taken. According to Sandra, she was moved to another room, though her roommate had already asked to be moved. Here's where things get even more strange. This roommate had given police a false address and phone number. When they tried to track her down, they found themselves standing in an empty lot instead of at the apartment she'd listed on the police report. Sandra doesn't have to do much work to connect those dots. For the next week, Sandra says she was given daily doses of sedatives. We do not have any corroborating evidence from Grady to back this assertion up. Not only have they declined to make a statement, but medical records, if they still exist, are protected. But Sandra's ex husband, Bobby, backs up her story. He also backs up what might be considered the most unbelievable aspect of her stay at the hospital. People don't want to think that something like this can happen, but for what it's worth, we believe Sandra too. She didn't and doesn't have a reason to lie. After all, she has never pursued legal action against Grady. Sandra tells us that, a day or so after Shante's abduction, she was visited by a man she describes as being a Grady PR person. She'd been in bed, in and out of sleep, and, by her account, heavily sedated. The police had come and gone and come again. The news media, too, and now this man. She wasn't sure if he was a lawyer or merely a representative. Sandra alleges that this man came to her room to tell her that she could not sue Grady specifically because Grady's insurance had lapsed. According to Sandra, she was taken aback. She'd had no plans to sue the hospital. She hadn't even thought about it. But she insists this conversation did indeed occur. And that opens up many more questions. Could Grady have possibly let their insurance lapse? If so, what would drive a representative of the hospital to approach a patient and make that known? And if not... Was this a gambit to convince Sandra that she shouldn't even attempt to sue the hospital? She claims that this PR representative also insisted that the hospital had a monitoring security system in place, something that was repeated often enough that the local news media decided to look for it. She said that her aunt, employed by Grady, had been told by other nurses that they shouldn't sue because then the nurses would lose their jobs. Again, we don't have Grady's version of this story. We've been unable to ascertain where these monitors might have been. There was no news reports that verified or did not verify their presence. For what it's worth, the family never saw any evidence of a system. The rest of Sandra's hospital stay was tense and awkward. She tells us many staff members avoided eye contact, especially the nurses who'd been at the station. What they had been told, if anything, is unknown. But we do know that Grady officials expressed that Sandra's hospital stay would be free. And we know, based on court documents, that they later sued her for that bill. The judge dismissed the suit and, according to Sandra, told the lawyers representing the hospital to not bother this woman again. According to Sandra, Grady did not attempt to follow up with any further debt collection or pursuit of those funds. In the weeks following Shante's disappearance, Sandra returned home to a devastated family and a slew of rumors. She discovered that both neighbors and co-workers were gossiping about her. Much like Donna Green, Sandra was accused of having given away or sold her baby, or even having killed the infant herself. She credits APD detectives Huffman and Ikerk for shielding her from some of the worst accusations. Because her family's phone numbers were unlisted, APD fielded most of the tips, false, accusatory, and otherwise, that came in. At various points, they were told to search for Shantae in the woods, at a church, or even that Sandra herself had injured the baby and hidden the body. It seemed endless. Based on what we gleaned from the results of our open records request, the APD stayed busy. They actively pursued any and all leads and tips on this case, including a call that came in mid-August a shop owner called in to report a suspicious woman who'd entered with a newborn all covered up in a blanket. In August, mind you, in Atlanta, with weather pushing the high 90s by the afternoon. The owner asked to see the baby, and the woman refused. In fact, upon receiving a few light questions about that infant, the woman hurried out of the store and got into a car with two young men. The shop owner had seen the APD composite sketch on TV, and she thought this young woman favored the kidnapper. She called it in. Atlanta police were there in minutes. They stopped the car when it circled back by the shop and thoroughly questioned the passengers. They also carefully checked the baby's back. You see, Shantae had a noticeable birthmark on her torso, which was lucky. A distinguishing mark like that can mean the difference between a closed or cold case. This baby didn't have the birthmark, so they let the woman leave. But Nykirk and Huffman didn't stop. They followed up on tips, stayed in contact with the Alexander family, and eventually got a call that would lead them to the DeKalb County townhome of one Louise Lett. During our research, Louise has remained something of an enigma. Shante's kidnapping has, by far, the most news coverage of any case we've ever covered, with at least 20 articles available and mention of TV coverage that has since been archived. Many of those articles are devoted to Louise and what happened after Shantae was located. To understand that, though, you need a little background on the kidnapper herself. Everything is presented at a distance, and we can't ask Louise about it. After a month or so of digging, we figured out that she died in Los Angeles in 1997, under a different surname. We found a picture of the headstone that also listed her maiden name of Herd. So Who was she, and why did she kidnap Shantae Alexander from Grady? In episode 5, we'll look at all the reasons women abduct infants, but in Louise's case, there was no clear external cause. By all media accounts, her marriage didn't seem to be in trouble, and she'd already established a family with her husband via the birth of her first son. On the surface, there was no practical reason why she'd be desperate enough to abduct a newborn. Incidentally, Louise maintained that she'd done no such thing. When the police arrived at her home on Strawberry Lane in Decatur, a suburb of Atlanta, she insisted the baby was hers, her second child with her husband, a long-haul trucker who'd been on the road at the time of the birth. Her older child, a son, was almost three. Louise eventually consented to letting APD examine the baby. Huffman checked for and found that telltale birthmark.
0: Madison Reed is on a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. Any woman who dyes her hair knows the lack of choices we've had, either outdated, at-home color, or the time and expense of a salon. Amy created Madison Reed because she believes women deserve better than the status quo. And that's exactly what this experience was. My color looks professionally done, and I absolutely love it. Madison Reed is reinventing the way women color their hair by offering the quality of salon color, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from the salon, but the reality is you had more me time to do what you love. Rather than spending a whole Saturday in a salon, with Madison Reed, I had gorgeous hair color and the whole day to myself. Experience beautiful, multidimensional hair color. Made in Italy, delivered to your door, on your schedule for under $25. Join the hundreds of thousands of women who've tried and loved Madison Reed, and I'm one of them. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Mine was Milano, a really beautiful, rich, copper brown. Madison Reed would like to honor the Fall Line listeners with 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with promo code FALL. That's F-A-L-L, promo code FALL, at madison-reed.com.
2: We don't have any direct report on how Sergeant Huffman felt at the time, but we imagine he was balancing excitement with trepidation. There without a warrant, they had to tread carefully. The officers asked Louise for a birth certificate, and she hedged digging through paperwork and checking around the house. Eventually, she said it was at her mother's place. The officers asked her to call her mother to bring it over. According to the Atlanta Constitution, Louise said it would take a while. The officers first said they'd wait, but eventually agreed to come back in a few hours. When they did, Louise presented them with a very fresh-looking document, featuring the name of a doctor and a hospital that didn't, as law enforcement later discovered, actually exist. Huffman and his partner made the decision to ask Louise Lett and her husband, who was to arrive home later that evening, to come into the station the next day. It had been five and a half weeks since Sandra Alexander's baby was stolen from her hospital room. When Louise and her husband showed up with the baby, the APD took the infant's footprints, something they could compare to the prints that had been taken at Shantae's birth. They tentatively identified a match. But that wasn't going to be good enough for the courts. Even as Sandra and Bobby Alexander were informed that their daughter had possibly been found, a Grady representative came to take the child into protective custody. They would have to await further tests. According to the Atlanta Constitution, the baby was described as having gained two pounds and was immediately given all the tests and vaccinations she should have received at birth. Officer Huffman called Sandra and Bobby to come down to Grady warning them not to break any speed records on the way, to be careful, and to take their time. But Bobby didn't want to go. He said he didn't want to see Louise let. We speculate that he also didn't want to face the possibility that the baby might not be Shantae. As you might remember, Sandra had a cousin who also worked at the hospital, and she offered to go down there with her. As soon as they entered, they saw some of the nurses who worked on the maternity ward. So my cousin went over there and asked
4: them, uh, have y'all examined the baby yet? And they couldn't tell her, but she said, just just shake your head, just let me know what, yes or no. They still, she said, yeah, y'all done seen the baby. And they had. So, because at the time, she had the birthmark like on her back, and they don't want to see me, see? So they knew.
2: Before Sandra was even on the 11th floor, she heard a commotion and unexpectedly came face to face with her daughter's kidnapper it was quite a scene louise led and her husband were engaged in a confrontation with police and only settled down when they threatened to separate them louise who'd been cursing and insisting that shantae was her baby was only willing to calm herself when she realized that separated from her husband the police might tell him anything The hospital informed Sandra that they'd hold Shantae in protective custody until blood tests could be performed and analyzed. In the various 1981 news reports, there's much talk of advanced tests to exclude maternity. Based on our research, it seems that Grady performed the 1980s version of modern DNA testing, RFLP. Time-consuming and requiring a substantial amount of blood to be run, These tests could match each half of a child's profile against each parent's, and those halves could be run separately. The tests weren't perfect for inclusion. Various factors and abnormalities prevented that, but exclusion rates were at 99.9%. Sandra wasn't told any of this. She was told that Louise Lett was going to bond out of jail awaiting the results, and that she'd better hurry down to the Red Cross and give her sample. Obviously, she complied. Over the next two weeks, Atlanta news coverage focused on the weight both couples had. Louise Lett's husband was quoted for the first time. Despite evidence to the contrary, Mr. Lett insisted that the baby had to be his. After all, hadn't his wife been pregnant? Atlanta police said at various points that they did indeed believe Louise had been pregnant, but couldn't speak as to what had happened with that pregnancy. According to the news reports of the time and what Sandra was told, Louise faked that pregnancy convincingly, stuffing her clothing and preparing for the birth of the baby. As we said, Mr. Lett had been on the road for much of that false pregnancy, so as far as he knew, he had, as he told police, a beautiful baby girl. It was at this time that APD began to examine the older child of Louise a little more closely. The three-year-old boy was just about the same age as Raymond Green, who had disappeared in 1978. Local news picked up on this, and, for the first time, Raymond's name made it onto the front cover of the paper, even if only in discussion of the new case. Donna Green was nearly breathless when she heard that the APD had also ordered blood tests on Louise Lett's son to determine whether or not he was her biological offspring. Could Raymond have been there, right in Atlanta? She and Raymond Sr. were brought into the station, where they cautiously identified a picture of Louise as Lisa Morris, the woman who'd taken their son. Within a few weeks, the test came back. Louise was the mother of her older child, and Donna and Raymond disappeared from the newspaper again. It soon became apparent that Louise had fabricated the birth certificate. When the test finally proved that the baby was indeed Shantae Alexander, Louise was formally charged with both forgery and kidnapping and was remanded to Fulton County Jail, where she would await trial. Nearly two months after Sandra Alexander watched Louise walk out of Grady, newborn stuffed in her bag, Shantae was finally allowed to come home. Local news coverage gave the story its due, with all three papers running photos of the reunited family. The Atlanta Constitution was there as a Fulton County Superior Court judge signed the paperwork to release Shantae to her family, and to interview Bobby and Sandra. Sandra was quoted as saying that the first thing she wanted to do was just hold Shantae tight. Sandra had held off on taking her maternity leave, so she was able to spend two months with Shantae at home. That same article also quotes Sandra saying that whenever she got down, her husband or mother would encourage her to stay positive, quote, I never gave up hope that I'd get her back, even if she was three or four or five years old. Some news coverage included Shante's four older brothers, who weren't entirely sure what to think. After all, they hadn't even met this mythical baby sister, the focus of so much attention in their household. Their reactions were some of the lightest moments in all the coverage. Sandra is quoted in one of the Atlanta Constitution articles as saying that her youngest son, 16-month-old Nicholas, remained wary. Quote, Nicholas tries to climb up in her bed when she's out of it. He tries to pinch her nose when no one's looking. The article also mentioned the reactions of her other sons. Quote, That's my baby. Nobody touch my baby. Adrian, age 3, told a reporter. Antonio, who was nine at the time, wanted to feed her and hold her, though he was less enthused about helping with the diaper changes. Their father, Bobby, is quoted as saying that he finally has a little girl to spoil. But legally speaking, the ordeal was far from over. The Alexander family would continue to face Louise Lett as she moved slowly through the Fulton County criminal justice system. The case went before the grand jury on September 30, 1981 and the first hearing was held soon after. Sandra and her family found the experience to be frustrating and somewhat bizarre, especially in terms of changing press reactions. She says she was criticized for seeking legal representation, and that the reporters who had been allies seemed to turn on her as the initial hearings took place. The case took time. First, Louise had to be determined competent to stand trial. Then, She initially entered a plea of guilty but revoked it after her lawyer argued the proposed sentence, five years, was too harsh. Keep in mind she was facing two separate charges, kidnapping and forgery. She remained in custody for another year as the gear slowly turned, finally entering another guilty plea in November of 1982 and accepting the same sentence as before, five years. She was granted time served for the 15 months she'd spent in county, awaiting trial. Though she was adamant that Louise Lett should pay for her crime, Sandra never pursued legal action against Grady. Recently, we discussed Sandra's case with Atlanta lawyer Andre Renault, who specializes in representing crime and accident victims. First, we talked about his experience with the presence, or lack thereof, of security cameras in hospitals and in other state or government-owned facilities. We then asked Mr. Renault to comment on Sandra's case and whether or not she could have brought suit in 1981. Please note, he's responding to Sandra's story of being visited by the PR representative. He is not personally making any claims as to the veracity of this story. As we've made clear, the events are alleged.
1: Her case is very interesting because it appears that there were several security measures that were not in place that likely contributed or led to her baby actually being abducted. There also appears to be at least some sort of evidence to suggest that even the nursing staff that was on duty would have potentially been negligent uh, as it appears that they may not have been Uh, manning their post correctly and keeping a proper lookout. Now, more specifically, if we talk about security measures, first and foremost, it appears that many of the hospital abductions that have happened, happen in what are county hospitals. And county hospitals often serve low-income individuals. And oftentimes, they're underfunded. So as a result, in these particular hospitals, that serve the low-income individuals, you're going to have the least security measures because when a hospital is doing its budget, they look where they can cut their budget. And oftentimes, unfortunately, security measures are what are cut first. Number two, it appears that there was either no security surveillance or if there was security surveillance, no one was actually watching because again, that would have helped hopefully bring closure to the case and, and would have helped the police find the baby sooner because they would have been able to go back, look at the video surveillance in the hospital, and hopefully would have been able to capture images not only of the individual going into Miss Alexander's room, but obviously uh, when the individual was fleeing and had the baby in in a bag. And certainly as the individual uh, was fleeing and took the stairwells and left different exits uh, to actually get out of the hospital and escape that day. So it appears that The surveillance was lacking if there was any surveillance. And finally, it appears that, again, the nursing staff uh, wasn't keeping a very watchful eye for what was going on on the floor. Uh, If an individual certainly is is running through the hospital with a duffel bag and perhaps there were cries uh, from the baby as she was fleeing, then this potentially could have been prevented or at least they could have gotten to security sooner and they could have locked down the hospital floors and the exits to prevent her from escaping. So with all those potential inadequacies, it appears that Miss Alexander could have brought a suit against the hospital for having inadequate security measures in place at the hospital uh, when such security measures appear to have been readily available within the medical community and certainly also warranted a given the stakes at issue, uh, i.e. potentially a baby being abducted from a hospital. Now, unfortunately, it appears that Grady knew that there was some potential liability, and that's why uh, apparently an individual from the hospital contacted Miss Alexander and, 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 I guess, told her either that they couldn't be sued or they didn't have any insurance, I guess, in an attempt to deter her from actually going to seek legal advice. Unfortunately, it appears that that actually worked because Miss Alexander uh, stated, at least in her interview, that she was just happy to have her baby back. And once she was told that, she really didn't think anything of it and certainly didn't go to speak uh, to a lawyer about pursuing uh, any type of monetary relief for everything that she and her baby went through.
2: After her release, Louise mostly dropped out of public record, with the exception of a few important facts. We know she and her husband divorced and that she remarried at least once. We know that she again served prison time, this time more substantial, for forgery, specifically related to airline tickets. It's worth noting that she had been charged with this before in DeKalb County, Georgia. Sandra remembers it having something to do with her escape plan, though there's no official record of this. Louise didn't have time to make it out of state after Shante's blood test results came back. In fact, she was found hiding two counties away in her sister's closet and had to be forcibly taken to trial. We're not sure how she ended up in Los Angeles, but she died there. Her headstone lists the date as February 22, 1997. Her older son's current location and status remain a mystery. We're not sure if she ever had any other children. To our knowledge, she never spoke publicly about the kidnapping of Shantae Alexander. In the years following Shantae's abduction, Grady did implement further security measures. Sandra and Shantae remember being interviewed on the news when the hospital made those changes. Between 1981 and 1996, though, there would be an additional five abductions, with three occurring on the maternity ward itself one in the children's wing and another from the waiting room. So, whatever was put into place directly following Shante's kidnapping, it wasn't enough to prevent the events that would unfold over the next 15 years. As a teenager, Shante was reunited with Sergeant Frank Huffman, the man so instrumental in her recovery. The moment was also captured on the local news and was apparently presented by longtime local news anchor Monica Kaufman. The other officer who had aided in her case, Nykirk, had passed away by this time. Sandra and Shante discussed this reunion with my co-host and the effect that it had on them. I met him, and I met, uh, at the time it was Major Mickey Lloyd for
5: APD. I met them um, when I was a teenager, and the honor that I had for him it was impeccable it's like I've, I've worshiped him <laughs> when I met I couldn't let him go when I when he first held me I did not want to let him go and um he told me how the you know my story impacted his life and how it changed things for him and I never I never I always wanted to do something in law enforcement I just didn't know what. And after meeting him, I was like, I want to be a police officer. I want to be, you know, somebody that impacts another person's life. You know, somebody that can um, make a change, pretty much, in somebody else's life. Because he he really did. Because they could have, that case could have easily been a cold case. But they did not give up. No, they did. They did not give up. And I appreciate it to this day because. I don't, I don't know how my life would have turned out, but for me to know that somebody took me from the lady that gave birth to me, I, I don't know how I would have reacted to that by finding that out later on in life. But um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for all the hard work. I'm grateful for like I said, my family not
2: giving up, but I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. Her experience had a variety of effects throughout her life and affected her childhood and adulthood, particularly how she raised her own children. As a girl, Shantae didn't know the story of her own abduction. She found out about her kidnapping during a fight with her brother. In a moment of frustration, he yelled, That's why I can't stand you. You're not my real sister. My sister was taken by a kidnapper. Shantae ran to the kitchen to ask her mother what her brother Nick could possibly have meant. Sandra had been ready for this moment. She showed Shantae a scrapbook that included all kinds of memories. Birthday parties, kindergarten class pictures, and newspaper clippings about her abduction it was a lot for Shantae to understand. She said it took years of looking through the book to process what had actually happened to her, and the biggest takeaway was a full understanding of the value of her family, who she says could have easily went on with their lives, but who instead looked for her, and tirelessly. When Shantae was 18 and had her first son, she was terribly afraid. Each time he left the hospital room, she held her breath, afraid he wouldn't return. That feeling has stayed with her and affected how she parents her own children even today. It has me clinging to my kids a lot. Like, I want to know their every move. I want to
5: know who they're around, what are they doing, who their the, their friends are around. And I try not to be so clingy, but I can't help it because, especially the society we live in today, they're, they're snatching kids. I mean... Sex trafficking is horrible, and they, they taking little kids as small as, I mean, as toddlers, and it's sad, and I, I
2: can't, <laughs> I can't grasp it. Like Shante said, a child abduction is hard to grasp, so unfathomable that most parents can't imagine what they would do if it happened. To get that child back is an incredible gift, but it also marks the entire family. Once they understand what can be lost, they live each day frantically trying to prevent it from ever occurring again. With all the families we interviewed, a recurrent theme was how smothered the children felt. Their mother's love was fierce and a little terrifying, and they grew up to parent in the same way, always vigilant and always watching. And for the parents who never got their babies back, it's that and worse. Raymond Green and Shantae disappeared less than three years apart in the same city under the same police force and hospital policy. So, why did Shantae's kidnapping turn out so differently than Raymond's? There are too many reasons to narrow it down, but it's obvious that the early and involved presence of the assigned detectives had a huge impact. That immediate, widespread forensic sketch was also incredibly impactful. Without it, Louise Lett would likely have never been located via a citizen tip. We asked Donna Green, Raymond's mother, about her thoughts on the difference between the children's cases.
0: So in 1981, three years, two years, two years. after Raymond went missing, Shantae um, Alexander's case received a great deal of media attention. Mm-hmm. A little less than two years later, do you have any thoughts as to why that might be and how the city had changed, knowing that she received so much media attention? How
3: much, how much media attention?
0: Um, in addition to television news stories, and she was recovered after a sketch was released regularly on the news, and someone saw the sketch and alerted the police, and that is how they were able to recover her.
3: Mm. Well, I think that um, the fact that she was recovered was one of the reasons. Um, and the fact that she was taken from the hospital was another reason. See, Raymond was taken from home. So, that, that of course, that would give you less coverage than somebody taken from a hospital, baby taken from a hospital. Uh, and then at that time, it was a couple of more babies, I think, right around that time had been missing. So, the alert was a little bit more, uh, it was a little more, high you know as to when these babies get missing what's going on well it doesn't take away from raymond you know what they didn't do for raymond that would have been awesome to have those but i found one little article on raymond did you find any more than that when he was missing because when he was missing i only found one article and i had to take that article to the hospital to prove that he was to the police department to prove he was missing so for them to um, have those many articles and everything. I think it was just the experience of having it happen and and having it happen and maybe the media understanding that the more you put it out there, you know, they didn't do that for me.
2: Next time on The Fall Line, we jump forward to the late 1980s and the case of Janqueer Brooks. And then further into the 90s, to explore the complicated story of the abduction of Tavish Sutton, who is still missing today. We hope you'll join us then.
1: Targeted. True Crime,
4: Domestic Violence. We tell stories of women, men, and children who were targeted by domestic abuse. We investigate cases of family violence each season using academic research to interpret the events. As a college professor, I think we need to stop making family violence a secret. It's time for us to tell our stories and use our experiences to help and to provoke change. You can find Targeted Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and all of the major podcatchers. Peace, my friends. Peace.